this week we have a memorable conversation with Peter Sarsgaard and Jessica Chastain, stars of memory, and a lovely chat with Fim Fenders, the legendary director, as he returns with Perfect Days. All that, plus usual news and nonsense, on the movie podcast that, no word of a lie, is wearing a Captain America t-shirt, Thor socks, and Tony Stark trainers. We are never beating the allegations. <laughs> Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, uh, the new fashion icon. Move over, Zendaya, with your robot suit at the premiere of Dune Amazing. part. Oh, no. I've said the, the D word. Dune. Luckily, he's not listening. Thank goodness he's not listening. He's still not listening. Nope. Is he ever going to listen? Hi. Hello, James Dyer. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm in the pod booth. I'm joined by my two colleagues of such a lethal cunning. James Dyer is here. Great big fucking nerd. Hello, James. Hello, Chris. Hello, hello. And our geek queen, Helen O'Hara, is also here. Hello, Helen O'Hara. Hello. What did you make of Zendaya's robot suit? Oh, my God. I thought it was incredible. I mean, does it make any sense for the film be... No, because of the butlerian she had and the fact that, you know, artificial intelligence is outlawed in the Dune universe and nobody wears robot suits and there are no robots. But apart from that, impeccable. No notes. Incredible. She looked amazing. She then changed into like a black dress, looked even more amazing. Uh, she's just amazing. She has fashion carte blanche. She <laughs> like can your wear, vocabulary. <laughs> I know. She can wear literally anything and make it look good. Can in a way she? That, yes. Can she? In a way that literally no human being should it, be able to do. It literally had a bum window. I know. And yet you were like, And no you all deal. complain when I try to pull that off. I, well, it, you have different I will bums. never try and pull off your bum you. window. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know that it's a that, like that's a it's like a vintage fashion it is, yeah. thing from like the nineties, isn't it? The yeah. 90s, yeah. Which right. makes me wonder: did she did she heist it? Did she break into this museum and and pinch it? I mean, half I, inch I don't, it. Oh, I, I don't want to get into the whole story behind her stylist's she, decisions. She borrowed it from Anthony the, Daniels. It's fine. Um, no, well, no. Anyway, Law Roach, <laughs> her stylist, who only works for her now because like she's just the best chose it for her. some damn car. fool accused you of being the best. Genuinely, is that how she yeah. was recruited? She, she is, she is, he is the, the uh, uh, who, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Law Roach. And he, where's he from? Is he like Marks and Spencer? CNA? Where's where is this like, what's his background? He's a stylist. Okay, good. All right, good stuff. Good anyway. stuff. And then he did the heist. To, Nobody to, did a heist. No one did a heist. No one did a heist. All right, sure. Okay, yeah, wink, for the, for the as wink, your lawyer, Chris, nobody wink. did a heist. No one did a heist. Zendaya's <laughs> hands are completely and utterly clean. Her dabs are not on it. That's it. Yeah. Wow, you're yeah. done with all the kids. What would Peter Parker think if, he t if, if his girlfriend turned up dressed like a big old robot? I mean, I think he would correctly think she's awesome. <laughs> it's true. So he'd be with me on this, I'm telling you. It's true. I did when I saw the pictures. Though, is yeah, it's 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 a hell of a thing. And also, I was I was so um, tickled at the time because I thought that Timmy Toomey had turned up and basically just a jumper. But he had he had space pants. He had space pants, and it was a fancy jumper. It was like a dragon skin jumper, or perhaps worm skin. Anyway, we're worm getting skin. ahead of ourselves. That is next year, next week's review. No, next no, we can review. we can absolutely spend the whole of this week's podcast talking but, about Dune as well. Now that I've seen it twice, yes, so have I. But we're not going to do that, are we? No, we're not. But can we? We're not. Self-control. I'm shutting that shit down, but if you do want to hear James Dyer talk about Dune Part 2, oh, God help us. I don't know how this is a selling point. But, I will not Dune-splain. Dune-splaining is the mind killer. Here we are. It is the little death for everyone around me. You are little death. 
Well, I actually well, hope on, not. I hope on, not. No, I hope not. Okay. This is t- tied to the bum window. I'm not no, sure. No, no little deaths in this room. Thank death, you very much, gentlemen. That's orgasm, right? It is, yes. And if I'm trying to sell people on next week's live show in Birmingham, which kicks off our tour uh, through the whole of the month of March. We're starting off in Birmingham next week. And I've been trying to entice people to come along because there are some tickets still available for Birmingham on March 1st at the Crescent Theatre. Do come along, ticketmaster.co.uk or empireonline.com forward slash pod tour if you want to buy direct from the venue. And I'm trying to get people to buy tickets in this based on the idea that if they come along and they'll hear James Dyer talk about June Part 2 for so long that he might have an <laughs> orgasm. I don't know I don't if know. that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know who that sells the tour to. Come, I'll be honest. gaze into my bum window. No, <laughs> Listen no to my review of Dune. Again, guys, we Behold. Quizatz Hadarak. Hadarak. Oh, my oh, God. No. Oh, come no. on. Come on now. Oh, look, the dress code for the tour is no bum windows. <laughs> all right? Front bum or rear bum. Wow. No bum windows no at bum all. Windows I don't know. I don't know. I, I am strangely drawn to the bum window. No shears. No bum windows. <laughs> That's that's just it. But it's going to be a lot of fun anyway, so do come along. Still tickets still available for Birmingham. And we're also going to be on tour after that in Norwich on March 6th at the Playhouse in Norwich. And tickets for that uh, have only gone to sell today to the general public. So today, as you listen to this, uh, Friday the 23rd of February, so you don't have a lot of time to buy tickets. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it'll galvanise people to go out and buy tickets. So uh, people of Norwich and surrounding areas do come out and see us. Uh, and then we're going to be in Sheffield at the Memorial Hall in Sheffield on March 13th. That's mm-hmm. Wednesday, March 13th. Sheffield Wednesday. Yes, thanks, James. Uh, and there's still some tickets available <laughs> for that. And tickets are selling really well for Dublin. Uh, uh, which is the Laughter Lounge, Hardy Har, uh, on March 21st. And tickets are also selling well for uh, Salford. Uh, but you know what? We could do with tickets selling out, quite frankly, for all of these shows. So do tell your friends, spread the word, tell them that you're going to see a man talking about June Part 2 uninterrupted until his microphone is wrestled out of his hands and he is evicted forcibly from the building. So, yeah. yes, ticketmaster.co.uk, empireonline.com forward slash pod tour. Very exciting. You are not the boss of me, Chris. I serve but one master and his name is Shai Hulud. <laughs> that's it. I couldn't remember the name of the silly worm. And that's it. The yeah. silly worm. The silly worm. The silly worm. How dare you, sir? Yeah, that is go. a god, kind of. Yeah. Does it have a bum window? I mean, I guess kind of. But also no. No to bum windows, no to the causes of bum windows. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have a whole bunch of questions uh, because I did a panicked shout out. At I love that film. What are the most exciting days in film history in your lifetimes and why? Oh, um, like the day the first Lord of the Rings trailer dropped, like that kind of thing? I guess. Uh, it would, I mean, that's, that's one. And when I say the trailer dropped, in those days, that meant you had to spend like half an hour online trying to download the trailer so you could watch it at a size of about 400 pixels across, right? Uh, I went to see, in fact, for work, the Winona Ryder... Was it Lost Souls? Was I think it? it was a Winona Ryder sort of really shitty horror film. And the only redeeming feature was that they were playing the Fellowship trailer before it. So we went, everyone from the office went and bought tickets for this film to go and watch the trailer and then everyone left by stayed because I was like, well, I bought a ticket, I'm going to watch the film. It wasn't very good. Well, but at least you knew that now. I did, yeah. it's true. 
But that was a pretty good day. When they said dates, I thought, you know, you were going to go with like August 29th, 1997. Oh, as in like like Judgment Day? Oh, yeah. 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 Is it like when it's been retconned so many times? I don't even know what day it's meant you to You make a good there. point. I think Judgment Day did get punted down the road, mm. didn't it? When Skynet became Legion, but we don't talk about dog face. We don't, no. <laughs> Uh, so what the day is it kind of you you bounced out of bed because you're so excited about something it could be meeting someone it could be interviewing someone it could be seeing a great film it could be anything really or it could be a, a, a hot trailer who knows so many things I mean so many yeah I mean you know uh, definitely seeing The Matrix was exciting I definitely bounced back back to bed after seeing it were you excited going into it though did I you was know excited, what you were going yeah. To well, I'd see. seen the trailer yeah, and the I was excited was enough, but I didn't know the full extent of what I was in for. And that was that was a really good day. That was a very good film-going day. Obviously, Endgame, I know we say it all the time, but it really was yeah. just epic. Um, in terms of like interviewing people, like there's always the fear. <laughs> you, yeah. You've always got the fear of like if it's a if it's a person that you love or a film that you're excited about, then you really want to do a good job of the interview. So there's a little bit of stress there as well as excitement. That said, I had that this week. Going on, yeah, you did. I had that this week. Going on set of uh, Civil War mm. was pretty more exciting than terrifying. Oh, and going on set of Dune. But no, 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 no. Sooner or later, she'll get to someone you do care about. <laughs> that, that's, that's, no, that's that was, beyond that was the pale. That'd be I'm like sorry. if they did a Columbo reboot and, and you fuckers went and settled out instead. Yeah, the, one of the worst days was when my Dune set visit, which was ready to go, they moved at the last minute to a weekend I literally could not do under any circumstances, thus paving the way for Helen to just ruin my life. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty brutal. Um, God, so many things. A lot of them, frankly, are Star Wars related. Like I remember, still remember vividly going to see The Phantom Menace. I remember that screening. I remember everything about it. I remember jumping the queue to get my seat. <laughs> I remember... Uh, monster. I, I really was. That was the one where I... I I realized, saw how long the queue was, realized we had not had not got there in time. And so I walked up to the front, just casually went up to the, the usher guy and went, oh, excuse me, where are the toilets? And, full and he went, oh, they're just down there through there towards the screen. So I went, okay, brilliant. And I went in and then hid in the doorway to the toilets until they said go and then I ran into the screen first. <laughs> that is monstrous. That is monstrous. There was somebody who'd been camping out there for hours yeah, I know. whose seat you stole. I did. I did. Oh, I'm inordinately you proud of that. Stole. I was a monster. You were. Oh, and no, are. I went full Palpatine. Um and then also, like, I think in terms of excited days, I remember the day that I went to Skywalker Ranch. And I remember waking up that morning and just being absolutely giddy. And the car yeah, drive fair. out there. And then when they said uh they just and because we weren't expecting this till we went, um, do you want to look around the archive? And I was like, <laughs> I made a, a lot of high-pitched sort of keening sounds. And, <laughs> then, and then the bit where... That? They've shut down the main reactor. Yeah. And then we went in, they opened up like, this huge vault door which has all the original props in there. And I, I remember saying, it's okay if I take pictures, right? And it wasn't until afterwards that Ian Freer, who was there with me, said, you realise she said no, but you just, at that point, you just stopped oh, listening boy. and you just went absolutely rogue. And I, I took I'm pictures very of everything. I, I've, I've been privy to James Dyer <laughs> stopping listening. Yeah. The intro of this very show. <laughs> just a few minutes ago. It's in true. Fact. It yeah. is true. Um, yeah, that was, that was absolutely magical. That was magical. I've never been to the Skywalker Ranch. Me I've been to either. its offshoot, the Big Rock you Ranch. You can see my pictures if you like. No, I don't want to. I'm sure they were <laughs> poorly composed and uh, blurry at best. No, I uh, I went to the Big Rock Ranch a few years ago whenever they were launching, I want to say, the Clone Wars. Sure. 
and uh, I met Dave Filoni and I played football outside with R2-D2. That was... Oh, wow. That was a lot of fun. What kind of a footballer is R2-D2? Shit. Oh, well, I was hoping it's for better. Robot. Can't really hey, play football. I'm sure uh, robots On the other hand, football. Everton are certainly to sign him, so... Oh, there I, is that. I sense that's a diss of yeah. some sort. Obviously. Best robot for playing football, of course, Helen, is R442. <laughs> oh, that's Am funny. I right? Am I yeah, right? Sure. Hello? Yeah, that's is, this, is this on? The, Hello? This is the kind Hello? of joke you could expect if you come see us live. <laughs> EmpireOnline.com forward slash pod tour uh, or Ticketmaster.co.uk. Search for Empire Film Podcast. Let's have another question. Let me see. Oh, Jesus Christ. I've pressed the wrong thing on my phone. Oh, God, it's all gone wrong. It's all gone wrong. Quick, Phil, improvise. <laughs> Quick, cover for me. How cover. are you, Helen? I'm, oh, I'm good, James. How are you? This is good yeah, stuff. Yeah, not, not Keep bad. Keep it going. Fantastic. Keep it going. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you are uh, looking forward to the tour. Uh, well, maybe we'll forward slash pod tour. All right. So this is from uh, Queer Mercia at Queer Mercia. And I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, so yes, I. Queer. Yes, that's correct. But Mercia, I'm not so sure about. Mercia, maybe. Uh, if it's Mercia, do you think? Reason. Spanish? Let me Spanish just region, click on yeah. this person's. Yeah, they are from Spain. Yeah, okay, bien. So if you think it's Murcia. Murcia. Was it Murcia? East Anglia. Back uh, in the day. East Anglia, like it's Norwich. Yes. Where we're going on tour. Yeah. Oh, we're March Mercia. 6th. Was, yeah. it, was it East Anglia? I know it was near Wessex, but anyway. Carry on. <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, it's LGBT History Month. Uh, what are your favorite queer movies? All of the Strangers. I know that it's. I know it's. Movie. I know there's um, an there's element of recency, recency bias. bias. Yes, <laughs> Jinx I know. Can't talk for the rest of the podcast. But, but it's just incredible, and yes, that has that has soared in at, at number yeah, one for that me. Yeah, that is a beautiful film. I mean, there's been quite a few. I mean, okay. First of all, you are asking three, you know, very boringly straight people this question. So I'm not sure that we are exactly the authorities to talk about this. But um, we'll give it a go. We'll, we'll give, give it a, a go. go. But how but, do you define queer cinema? First of all, Helen, because are you are you saying? Is it um, a gay director? Is it a, a gay subject matter? Gay characters? Gay actors? I think it has to revolve around a queer relationship, yeah, right? Like a, okay. it, yeah, that has to be a major part of the story to me. And and so, I mean, like, I, I was actually looking at a, a list of films that people suggested and, and, you know, Everything Everywhere All at Once was on there. But to me, that's a queer character in a story that doesn't... Mm. It's partly about that, and, and the relationship that she has with her mother is oh, partly right, okay. shaped by that, but I don't feel like that's the central theme of the film. Whereas something like Carol or Call Me By Your Name, yeah. which would be two of mine... Call me by your name! But it's such a good film. I know. It Enhanced. You should have gone with Love, Simon or something instead. Love, Simon, very yeah. charming film. Really yeah. charming film. Pride was a gorgeous film. Um, God's Own Country, my God, was an uh, incredible film. Blue is the Warmest Colour. It is. Uh, Brokeback Mountain, A Broke Single Man. Gorgeous mm-hmm. films. But um, but yeah, so it has to be, I, I you know, I'm not saying it has to be a relationship story, but that queer identity has to be a major part of the story to me, whether that mm. means it's about a relationship or about a life that has been shaped by being LGBT. All right. What about My Own Private Idaho? That's yeah. an amazing oh, show. Oh, yes. It's a good show. Yes, that's a very beautiful film. Yeah. Yeah. Bit of Gus Van Sant. Mm. Bit of Gus Van Sant, bit of bit River of, Phoenix. Bit of Keanu, bit, bit of, of River. Keanu. Oh. Moonlight, another one. Yes. Gorgeous film. Amazing film. Nearly won an Oscar. 
<laughs> stole the Oscar <laughs> from, from La La Land. Yeah, Oscar. right. Yeah, that's right. Rightly because of a heist. Got the Oscar by being better. That's what happened there. It's my understanding that they heisted it. Uh huh. Is that true? No. Okay. Good. <laughs> so are we legally covered? <laughs> oh boy. As as my lawyer. <laughs> I thought, by the way, Colette was really good. A lot of people didn't see Colette, but the uh, the Keira Knightley film. About the writer. The fact I'm looking at you blankly. Today, <laughs> you I also are, you, are, you blankly. are a lot of people. But it is, no, it's a it, it's a really good film. It's not just another, you know, Keira Knightley in, in a corset kind of film. Apart from anything else, she often go, wears a tuxedo Does in she it. go, my name is Colette and I am a bounty hunter. Well, no, because she wasn't a bounty hunter. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But otherwise, pretty close. I um, have, in fact, seen Colette. It's good, right? Mm. Um, I think it maybe helped that I went in not expecting very much. Also, the big, big dog we haven't mentioned, uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire unbelievably great film just incredible um, so yeah there's been there have been I mean a lot of these are recent but there have been far more I think in recent years you know it used to be that I think a lot of people had to make do with with scraps of filmmaking you know with my own private Idaho which is very kind of tiptoes around the subject quite a bit actually um, you know uh, but I'm a cheerleader was kind of as radical as it got yeah. for a lot of mm-hmm. years um, certainly in kind of mainstream Hollywood cinema because you had you had queer filmmakers who had mm-hmm. to truck in subtext yeah because of the the times in which they operated yeah. and, and even more recently you know X-Men 2 is is a movie that, that springs to mind have you tried uh, not me. being a mutant have you tried not being yeah. a mutant there's literally a, you know, that, that sort of coming out scene in X-Men yeah. 2 is was very much inspired by one of my favourite films as you know rightly or wrongly is Interview with the Vampire which is a classic queer story the only reason I don't include it in this is because this, the, the, it's all subtext it's, in the movie it's so kind of it's straight washing a thing well yeah, anyway that's what it does essentially like it's all they, they, they dial it back so much that it's almost unrecognisable from the the source mm. material, which the recent TV show does not. Does not, very no. much does not. But that's that's the way. I mean, people had to kind of tiptoe around it for a long time. The other thing is, of course, like, as um, as they found out with Boys Don't Cry, is you risked, uh, you risked much harsher uh, fights with the rating board over queer content than over straight content. Mm. So very non-explicit sex scenes in queer movies... Um, had a lot harder time getting through the system with INNC-17. Um, whereas, you know, straight movies like whatever, Boobs Ahoy, Boobs a Go-Go. I do enjoy Boobs Ahoy and its sequel. <laughs> but um, but yeah, Boys Don't Cry really, really struggled to actually get a sort of mainstream release as a result of that. Um, that's also true of films that depicted female sexuality, but that's a whole other, like just even in a straight mm. relationship, um, female orgasm was like not okay. Male orgasm, totally fine. Um, but that's a whole other argument. But anyway, yeah, it, it it is only in recent years that we're beginning to see more mainstream Hollywood depictions of LGBTQ plus people. Mm. Um, and uh, and that's a good thing. Even going back, you know, so many, many years, I mean, thinking about something like Dog Day Afternoon, mm. Which Al Pacino. That was pretty radical at the that time. That was yeah. very radical at the time. Yeah. 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 Anyway. There we go. Yeah. Just a few, at least. Just a few. Just a few. And. Uh, oh, Kissing Jessica Stein. Mm. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Which is a good movie. And, That's a good um, and kind of, you know, a little bit is kind of more about experimentation, I guess, with sexuality than someone who is, you know, actually lesbian, as it turns out. But, uh, but a really funny, smart, incisive film, I think. Yeah. And let's never talk about Chasing Amy. No. Okay, so if you want to have your question read out in the Emperor podcast, we are going to be doing shows, by the way, whilst we're on tour. So don't worry, because someone did 
write to me on Twitter going, but you're going to be doing shows, right? And yes, we are. The podcast is going to be coming out every Friday, but we'll also be doing the live shows as well, which will not be going out as live shows. So if that doesn't already compel you to buy a ticket and be June-splained at by James <laughs> for a good hour every night, uh, I don't know what will. But we will be doing regular shows as well. So we will be doing questions. So do send them in at Chris Hewitt on Twitter. You can slide into my DMs, of course. You can reply to a panic shout-out every now and again. Or you can reply to any of my tweets once you've stopped laughing. All right, should we have a guest? Yes, let's. All right. So, who have we got this week? We have Peter Sarsgaard and Jessica Chastain, or we have uh, Finn Vendors. Oh, that's an embarrassment of riches. Let's start with uh, with Peter and Jessica, as I like to call them. Peter, <laughs> Peter and famous. Jessica are good pals. <laughs> Peter and Jessica. Uh, yes, Peter Sarsgaard and Jessica Chastain are the stars of Memory, uh, Michelle Franco's Memory, uh, which is out this week, in which Peter Sarsgaard stars as a man who is suffering from early onset dementia and he strikes up a relationship with Jessica Chastain's adult carer, Sylvia, and a relationship takes many twists and turns, as I'm sure you can imagine. Uh, Ollie Richards went along and spoke to these two together on Zoom, and uh, a great time was had by all. I am reliably informed. Hope you enjoy. Uh, welcome uh, to the Empire Podcast, Jessica Chastain and Peter Sarsgaard. Very nice to have you here, and congratulations on this film. Uh, sort of almost don't want to say anything that happens in this at all, because it's a film that almost from about 10 minutes in took directions I was not expecting at all. That's the Michelle Franco way, my friend. That is when you, I mean, that was when I started reading the script. I was like, I, I have no idea what this movie is. I still don't know, really. I'm like, at the <laughs> end, isn't it a happy ending? I don't know. I'm not so sure. That's the beauty of it. Yeah, life yeah. isn't happy endings or sad endings, is it? It's just a series, a series of endings and new beginnings. Exactly. I think if you also, if you were to have watched any of Michelle's, if you followed Michelle Franco's movies, um, whenever you come into a new one, you also know that absolutely anything could happen at any moment in the movie. I mean, he he really allows himself that. It's like uh, they're structured in the end, but they're structured according to what. He does. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a terrific film. Uh, Jessica, I understand that you bought um you bought Peter onto this. Uh did you am I like did you know each other before? I think we all, all all us regular people assume that all actors know each other, but did you know each other? No, sadly we didn't. I mean, I had met Peter and Maggie a few times. Um, of course, always wanted to work with both of them. Uh I remember Peter's work. Boys Don't Cry, Shattered Glass. Like I had always really longed to work with him. And then um, Michelle asked me who would would be, be exciting to be on set with. And I said, absolutely, Peter. Uh, but that did not get him the part. He had to, he met with Michelle and they did their whole talk and and the whole thing. But I was I was consulted. Of course, I did, Peter. Yeah. I didn't mean to suggest that you were you were handed this part. You know, you are. You no, are I got the it. part. <laughs> I got the part. I met him on Lori's side. Took him to Russ and Daughters Appetizers, classic <laughs> of New York. And then we went on like a very long walk where I showed him because I used to live in that part of New York. And uh, we just talked and talked and talked. And at the very end of it. He was concerned that I was going to be like a fit actor. So um, we got to talking about that and I just stopped 
pulled up my shirt and was like, I'm in the worst shape of my life right now. And he was like, oh, fantastic. That's great. <laughs> um, and actually, I really was because I had I'd been athletic my whole life and I injured myself about a year or six months before the start of this movie. And um, I felt pretty terrible physically. And I was trying to get back into shape. And he said, oh, don't do that. So it was nice to have license to wallow in that state a little bit longer. I mean, it may be the only uh, instance I've ever heard of an actor being told to um, to not get in um, any kind of better shape for a, for a uh, part. Right. Even for the character that is not <laughs> the one who has to lift the car over his head. Yeah. Every character um, must be fit. <laughs> um, tell me about like having wanted to work together um, for a while. What was the what was the experience like? Was there anything about uh, meeting each other and working together that particularly surprised you? I I surprised myself in that when I I've discovered that every film I work on, I don't really know how I work, and I think that's okay because also I like this idea of being curious and not even knowing. Who I am. This idea of every day I'm waking up and I'm discovering new things about myself, about the world, about the way I'm working, about like I can evolve and shift and change. And on this, it was, I've made a lot of love stories in the past. And this, I just really kind of hid. I didn't really talk to anyone. I would say hello in the morning, but I really made sure I didn't like to have any chit chat with anyone. So Peter and I really got to know each other, not Peter, Saul and Sylvia really got to know each other on set. And I think perhaps it was maybe more beneficial that we weren't friends before that Mm -hmm. had all this history and all the stuff, because as we're seeing these two characters meet and not really trust each other and trying to figure the other ones out and what does that look mean? And why did they do that? as we're as the characters are doing it as we're doing it so it just felt so immersive and authentic and real and it was completely unthought about (laughs) i wasn't like a grand scheme i had it just i allow the kind of the characters to tell me without thinking about it how how to how to prep for it and how to how to create it and and in order for that to you know work um you have to establish with each other some kind of trust, you know, and, you know, sometimes people need to sit down and talk about it all. But I, I felt like just intuitively somehow as a message sent non-verbally, we were like, I said, you, you have my trust. And I felt like she said, you have my trust. And we just kind of went into doing it. That's the to me, that's frequently the biggest hurdle. And that's frequently the reason people do need to talk about it. And people do need to have rehearsal and sit and go out to dinner for the weeks before and try to find all this stuff. It's not necessarily just about like trying to find the part of you that's interested in this other person and find the chemistry. It's just about like, can I trust you? You know? So, how quickly is that there then? Because if you're both saying, you know, you don't, you don't, you didn't rehearse, you go in there straight when it's just like, I have to trust you completely. You haven't worked together before. How quickly does that trust develop? Well, I think for me, it was that I respected him so much. Mm-hmm. Because 
had I not seen Peter's work or not known the kind of actor he was, I think it would be more of a scary endeavor. But because I trust, I trusted him as an artist. It's I didn't have to trust him as a character. I trusted Peter as an artist. Mm -hmm. And that meant I had no idea what he was going to do, but I knew it would be authentic. I knew from our first scene with each, I knew before we even had our first scene that we would, he would be present. He would be open to whatever I brought to the table. I was open to whatever he brought to the table. And it, 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 because I have such immense respect for him, it allowed that to happen. I feel the same, Jessica. I, I really, I mean, I've been so blown away just by the range of her work. You know, it's, um, and I guess it is partly that if you, if you see that someone is after the truth as an artist, usually you can trust them as a professional. Um, so yeah, it, it didn't feel like a big hurdle or anything like that. It was just sort of like, yes, we, we have that and now we can just make the movie. And Peter, your character Saul, he has um, early onset uh, dementia. And I, I gather that you sort of drew on some family experience for that. Your your uncle um, had early onset dementia. Am I, am I correct? Yeah, my uncle had early onset dementia, which is most likely CTE, which is caused you know from brain trauma. Uh, he was a football player. He played center for LSU. He was a boxer. He's a fireman. He just did all kinds of things that are not great for you. And um, so, yeah, and, and what was helpful about that was it made me also think about like the adjustment that a family has to make when someone is diagnosed with dementia, because of course we all live with symptoms of dementia before you finally go to the doctor and you're diagnosed. Mm -hmm. So there's been this dance that families go through, at least from my experience, where they're like, what's wrong with him? Why can't he just, what is he high? Like what's going on, you know? And, and then there's a lot of guilt that comes in later and everybody, you know, once the diagnosis happens, everybody's going like, how do we, uh, how do we make up for it? Well, we lock him down. We lock the door. He can't drive. We're going to take care of him. We're going to put a cocoon around him. And it's a very natural reaction, but I, that's what I was fighting. I knew I was one, the conflict for me was not just the condition, but the way everyone was reacting to my condition, including probably me. I had to set myself free and say, I can fall in love still. Why not? You know? So um, it was valuable in terms of that. And then I did my own research with um, a doctor here in New York and met some people who have early onset dementia. One of them was in his late forties actually. And, um, they, I was astonished by how much they remembered. So it really set me on a course toward a certain depiction. It, I mean, it's kind of a, even though I think we all sort of think we know a lot about um, dementia, I think it's actually a condition people don't know that much about. I remember interviewing uh, some people with early onset dementia years ago and being surprised how different it was from what I expected. That, you know, like you say, it, it, they can remember a huge amount and it is a gradual thing, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, somebody asked me, why does he like fall down? You know, why, what does that have to do with dementia? And I said, well, he's on all this medication. Mm. And a lot of the medication that you can take definitely has very strong side effects. 
But like, um, you know, there's a lot of confusion about that. Like, how does someone from dementia die? What it, what is, you know, what does the whole course of it look like? Well, I feel like we've seen the tail end of it oh, a lot. Yeah. You know, most depictions I've seen in movies have been that. I feel like, I assume they did their homework. I actually know less about that. I wasn't with my uncle when he passed away. He died during COVID. Uh, and he was in a nursing home that was on lockdown. Um, so, you know, I wanted to just really focus on this this earlier part. And having both started this project, you both wanted to work with each other. Jessica, I know that you said that Peter was sort of at uh, n- near the top of your list of people you wanted to work with. Uh, for both of you, who's uh, hang who's on a next second? On hang on. Did you just say near? Apologies. That was my choice of words, <laughs> not Jessica's. <laughs> Abs- that's the absolute top. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who's 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 next on the t- on the top of that list? I don't know. It depends on the job, and it depends on the part. I mean, there's so many people I want to work with, but I'm not right for every part written. So you know, it's it when it, there's a sensitivity that. Peter has and uh, openness that he has and a transformational quality that he has that just felt so right for Saul. Now that you've worked with Peter, like, you know, one dream ticked off. Uh, who, is, who else is on your dream list? Ruth Gordon. Oh, I know really? she's no longer alive. When I watch Ruth Gordon act, sometimes I'm just like, I think it would be so much fun. Every movie she's in, I see her pop up in these, you know, she didn't act until she was older. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually I just lost a piece of jewelry on vacation and I reminded myself of that great Ruth Gordon line. Now we'll always know where it is. Mm-hmm. It's at the beach right there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I did say dream, didn't I? So I guess you can pick, can pick living or dead. Um, you were, um, I was looking at both of your, um, CVs earlier on and you are both very prolific, prolific people. Like I was, like you both seem to always be working. Like the past few years, you've had two or th- uh, like three or four things coming out every year. Are you both people who always want to be working? I want a vacation every once in a while because, like, <laughs> well, yeah, let's go to the beach. I don't want to lose any jewelry at the beach, but let's go like have a vacation. <laughs> um, but I'm definitely someone I all I want to be working on something. I I have a difficult time just doing nothing. That doesn't mean I need to be on a set. It means I want to be reading. I want to be prepping. I want to be researching. I want to be going to museums. I want to be. I I have this thing. I'm like a. I have to always just be moving forward in some way. Um, and that doesn't mean in terms of success, it just means in terms of, I can't stay in still water. I've got to, I want to be like in a river. I really like, so the mode that I'm in right now is one that I actually really like, which is like sort of support mode. You know, my Mm -hmm. wife is doing this very ambitious, awesome movie. She's in pre-production. She's literally in LA right now. I'm here with the kids and I'm acting in the movie. So, you know, it's like I'm artistically engaged. But I love hearing all the ins and outs of everything as a film is put together and, you know, just being a champion. It's, it's, um, yeah, I take pride in it. It's nice. 
And you both strike me as people with um, eclectic and excellent taste in movies, just based on the ones that you've done. Uh, both of you, what are your films that you return to again and again to watch? Our own? No, not your own. Your, what's your, what's, your, <laughs> what's, what's the movie? I mean, if you've seen, if you've watched one of your own movies more than any other, by, by all means, choose your own. We won't judge. Um. I just because I'm such a fangirl and fanatic and she knows it. And that's probably why we're good. We became friends. We're good. Isabel Huppert, because I worship her and she knows it and she accepts it. And she loves being around me because I worship her. <laughs> so, um, I, I, the piano teacher, like whenever I want to feel inspired, I just think it's the best performance on screen ever captured. You know, I'll just pick some one that I don't say that often, but it just occurred to me that it was like a performance and a movie that I, especially when I was coming up as an actor, I always got inspired from was the movie The Dresser yeah, with Tom Courtney and Albert Finney. And there's a scene with Tom Courtney in that movie where he's like, what about me? You know, it's his dresser and Albert Finney is going crazy. He's like, what, what do I do? Like, if you're fucked up and you can't go on stage, I don't have a job. And I, I just love him in that scene. I always just sort of love Tom Courtney's idiosyncratic thing. And, you know, he was, for some reason, that one always actually realized it was a play later on. And I was like, oh, I'd love to do that play one day. Excellent. I'm I'm going to go and watch both of those again now. I'm going to go and do a double bill. Um, Jessica Chassain and Peter Salsgaard, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Big pleasure. Have thank a good you. day. OK, that was Jessica Chastain and Peter Sarsgaard. And we will be reviewing Memory later in the show, which is very, very exciting it's for the everybody. the best song in Cats. It's the... Only good song only in good Cats. Only good song in Cats. Yeah, isn't that true? Ain't that true? Uh, all right, movie news. And my God, there is a ton of movie news. And for me, there's only one place to start. We talked about the Fantastic Four on last week's show. <laughs> this week, we're going to be talking about the Fab Four because it was revealed this week that Sam Mendes is going to direct a Beatles biopic, an official Beatles biopic. But he's not going to stop there. He is going to direct four Beatles biopics, all shot at the same time, all due to come out in the year 2027, the year of our Lord, 2027. And they will each focus on the individual Beatles and then they will intersect and then presumably come together to fight Thanos in Beatles Endgame. Who knows? Yes, But there's obviously John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison and the other one. Ringo Starr. That's him. Yes. Um, so it's the mop top cinematic universe. It say. is. It, yes. you, you might you might very well wish to say <laughs> that. I couldn't possibly comment. I am amused, tickled, delighted, intrigued by this. Um, I'm not sure how it's going to work, but I'm fascinated to see how it does. I think it's a really interesting way to approach uh, a story where... So for, what, three years of intensive kind of touring and Beatlemania and then, you know, a few more years of not performing live anymore. These guys were the biggest thing in the world. Well, they were the biggest thing in the world for a lot longer than that. And they all had such character and they had so much um, 
they were all so fascinating. Like I went to the Paul McCartney exhibit at the National Portrait Gallery recently, and it played one of their um, one of their early press conferences when they arrived in the US. And they're all so funny, and they're all so smart, and they're all so sharp. And you kind of want to get into that a bit more, not just the relations between them, which any biopic would cover, but what shaped each of them individually. So I, I think if he does, you know, if he uses this approach to kind of look at, you know, each one's character, each one's formative influences, what each of them brought to the band, mm -hmm. and then obviously there's going to be intersections the whole way through, like, mm -hmm. you know, a sort of Rashomon, I guess, approach well, the first to big time moments. Yeah, Paul and John first met. Indeed. That and one. That, I think, Huge. is a fascinating, fascinating way to approach something that has been so talked about and mythologized, but also not really explored in fictional form on screen. And that is really exciting to me. I'm so I'm so up for this. I'm, I assume they're going to cast pretty much unknowns. I think you kind of almost well, have it, to. It depends. I, I guess you have to. I saw a lot of casting speculation immediately afterwards, and most of it was terrible. Uh, and most of it was <laughs> actors who were just plain wrong uh, or too old. Um, someone said that it should be four young Scouse actors that, uh, or you know, it, or that you should definitely have a passable Liverpudlian accent. Probably the best depiction of the, of the Beatles on the big screen was in Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. <laughs> but there's only one even vaguely passable <laughs> Scouse accent in that, and that's Justin Long's. Uh, Jack Black's, Jack Black's Paul McCartney is is something else in that. I'm not even sure he's been near Liverpool, let alone. I don't think it, he's even know. heard of Liverpool. No, I don't think he's heard film. of Liverpool at that point. But uh, yeah, it's wild. I am hugely, hugely excited about this. The Beatles, uh, I'm a huge fan of the Beatles. And of course, you know, they made their 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 name not just for being possibly, you know, R.E.M.'s my favourite band, but possibly the greatest uh, rock and roll band of all time, but for being groundbreaking mm -hmm. and for being envelope pushing and trend setting and taking risks and doing things that nobody had ever done before. And nobody's ever done this before. This is, this is wild. This is like, you know, whenever Todd Haynes directed I'm Not There and he did the Bob Dylan biopic and got loads of people to play Bob Dylan and in the and and and, and try to avoid the cookie cutterness of biopics, which is, you know, no matter even if something's entertaining, like the Bob Marley biopic that just came out, um, One Love, which has done really well at the box office, it still suffers from that very much soup to nuts, cradle to grave, A to B format that can hamper a lot of biopics and I like a biopic that takes risks and my god this takes risks but, but is it or is it just four of them no it doesn't no, matter I, th I think you've even got... if it's just four the fact that they're yeah. shooting them all at the same time yeah. they're being released in the same year so you're going to have different characters from one appearing in another it's this is this is cool this, this is, is genuinely a, cool this is on a scale that the Beatles would have done back in the day yeah when they were at the, at the absolute height of their powers and they were doing things that nobody had ever done before. Why don't we try and do this? Why don't we try and start the song with feedback? Why don't we try and start the song with a fade in? Things like that. You know, this is incredible. I'm, I'm fully on board with this. I have seen people say that they would have liked to see four different directors rather than Sam Mendes. Oh, but so I do think you need that, maybe that authorial voice. You, yeah, that's probably that's probably fair. I think you, you it would be nice to have, in the same way that the Marvel Cinematic Universe does it, a, a little bit of an, a different tone for each one. A different a Tony. Different, different energy. No, no Tonys. <laughs> well, maybe some Tonys. But um, a different energy, a different a different emphasis, obviously. Um, yes. And I'm sure that, that has to be part of it. Otherwise, it would be boring. And I don't think it should be boring. Um, but I, I'm, I just think it is exciting. I think it's really interesting to 
see different the same event from different points of view to see the moments that were formative and most important for each of them to see you know what led them to where they were you know McCartney's you know loss of his mother very young that kind of thing is going to have a different effect um I don't know if they'll go up to sort of John's relationship with Yoko oh no do they go up to John's death do they go up to John's death because oh my god you know that these are all like fascinating stories because there's, um, there's a natural end point yeah obviously there's a natural end point for the Beatles but do you go beyond that do you go beyond that into the post Beatles phase where you know maybe some of them are struggling to find themselves a little bit John has his difficulties shall we say and obviously he's murdered in 1980 do you go beyond that as well you know which one's going to be the best you know I or Pete best I, I don't know Ringo's story remotely as well as I know no. Paul and John and George. Jumbo, as a Beatles skeptic, as a Beatles phobic, you're not excited about this at all, are it, you? Even remotely. No, I'm struggling to care at all. I'm, I'm, I'm interested. They ride sandworms. I forgot to, I forgot to mention that. <laughs> I'm in. Uh, I, I, I'm interested in it for the reasons that you mentioned, that it's a really unorthodox way of approaching a subject matter. And I do absolutely salute that. I just wish I cared about the subject matter. That said, there is a very real possibility that this quartet of films might kindle an interest in the Beatles in me that does not exist. Because I remember going to see uh, Supersonic, you know, which was a really good Oasis documentary, having always detested Oasis. And after that, I have been far warmer to Oasis mm. than I ever was then. It, but it's kind of like that because oh, Supersonic reminded me that Oasis were funny fuckers. They were really funny, as well as like having some boppable tunes. They were really funny, funny guys. And it's like that with the Beatles. The Beatles were so sharp and so witty. Mm. And they were, for the time that they were going through Beatlemania, really close and really a tight-knit unit. And and so the relationships within that are going to be interesting. They really are. And to be the focus of the entire world's attention and have that on you. I mean, that was one of the things that really came out of the Paul McCartney ex- exhibition to me mm. was that they were so young. I mean, they were still in their teens mm. and the whole world was going nuts around them. And, um, and you know, America just went berserk when they went there. And to have that and to be in the centre of this maelstrom and the only other people who understand it are the three guys with you is and you're and you're also mm-hmm. by the way making some of the greatest pop tunes and rock tunes the world has ever ever uh, known. I mean it's incredible. That interests me. Like, I'm genuinely interested to know about their formative years, their influences, how it all came to be because like my knowledge of any of their lives, what happened, you know, as you said, like when John, I couldn't have told you what year he died. Like, I have no clue about any of this stuff. My ignorance is vast. So on the one hand, I'm quite interested in that. And even watching yesterday made me think about them in a slightly different mm. way. So there's a benefit to this, although you should probably call Sam Mendes if you can and tell him that John Nugent is right here and available <laughs> for the George Harrison film. We've done that. We've done that work for him. That's in the bag. That's true. That's a very good point. You're right, though. I mean, they were they were still in their late twenties, I think all of them, when they split up. So they split up. You know, the, the last Beatles album comes out in nineteen seventy, but they basically split up in nineteen sixty nine. I don't even know why they split up. No idea. Well, there were well, a lot. There were there was friction, mm. shall we say? A lot of it's in Get Back. You can see mm. the internal yeah. tension, but you can also see what happens when they they get together and they and they play together, and it's just magical. So I'm excited about this too. Gareth Edwards, yeah, is going to direct. 
four Jurassic World movies, each focusing on a different dinosaur, <laughs> and then they will come together. Oh, hey, hey, hey. hey. No, they won't. No. Uh, he's going to direct the new Jurassic World movie because a few weeks ago we said it was going to be David Leach, but then David Leach was like, uh-uh, don't like the schedule. Yeah, because we're locked don't do in- Kung Fu. <laughs> we're locked into a release date that, quite frankly, I don't want to be locked into. Uh, and so they looked for someone else and Gareth Edwards stepped up yes. to the plate. Hurrah! Because the creator was magnificent. It was very good. It was. And it's good to see him back in the game. On behalf of my three-year-old niece, I would like to put in a request for certain dinosaurs. We know nothing about these films yet. We don't know what they're going to focus on. We believe it's not going to be Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard. Uh Um, So everything is presumably up for grabs. My niece's favourite dinosaur is a Bambi raptor, which is like a velociraptor if it had feathers and was beginning to have wings. This is a real raptor? It is a real raptor. There was a Bambi feathery raptor. raptor in the most recent... Well, she hasn't seen that yet because she's too young, but I'm hoping by the time this one comes out she can watch that. Has she seen movies. any of them? No, because she's like three and they're scary. I was watching The Terminator when I was eight. I'm, yeah, but she's three. Anyway, she can also she's also learned how to say Pachycephalosaurus, so I would like there to be one of those in the film just so she can use her vocabulary. Fair enough. I can barely see Pachycephalosaurus, so, you know. What I'm not even going like? to try. I don't know. Right. Okay. I just learned that that's on one of her words this week, <laughs> along with paleontologist and illustrator. Jesus Christ, three years old. Three years old. She's scary, I'm telling you. Of course she's, she's but related to you. It's okay, she, she also likes Elsa from Frozen. Hey, that's good. That's anyway, good. I, I may have derailed things somewhat, but I would just like to register yeah. that. Request, but um, I'm I'm excited. I'm, I think it, he's a really great person to be making a Jurassic movie. If we're going to do more of those, is this an interesting flex? though because you know he directed After Monsters. He then mm. went into Franchise Phil, and he and directed Godzilla, and then got very burned on Rogue One. Then yeah. took some years off. Although you know, talking to him for the for the creator, he wasn't licking his wounds after Rogue One. You know. Various things. He was working on various projects and then got close and then faded away and then the yeah. pandemic happened. So it wasn't necessarily that he was going no to franchises. Uh, but after The Creator, I honestly did not expect him, the first move he made after The Creator, to be a big old franchise film. No, Jim, but no, what, what no, you, no I didn't either. But The Creator was one of my favorite films of last year. And I just thought it, it was, it had such vision to it. And I know, you know, it was slightly divisive at times, but I just thought it was, I thought it was a wonderful film. And I would love to see him take that approach Ooh, to filmmaking. Oh, take that. A different movie, but take that. <laughs> How many members of Take That? Were there five? Oh, the, the changes. Started off with five. <laughs> then there were four. Then it went up to five again. And now there are three. Mm. Back to Gareth Edwards. Yes, I'm intrigued to see what he does with this and whether he can bring that sort of sense of uh, of place. And, you know, it's that combination. Maybe they just looked at it and they saw, they saw what he did with the creator with the budget he worked with. And we're like, yeah, yeah we want ourselves some of that. Yeah. So... It could really be part of it. I mean, the fact that he is as good as he is with VFX is yeah. a huge, huge plus going into something yes. like a Jurassic movie. <laughs> we could like save on the budget. <laughs> no, we, but like... <laughs> Gareth, you, know, you do it. it. It genuinely helps if your director knows what the hell they're Absolutely. doing with effects. It really Absolutely. does. So that's, it's exciting. I, I'm, I'm really pleased for him as well because also the creator didn't do brilliantly at the box office and you worry that he won't then get opportunities on the back of that. And I think people are looking at the quality of the film and not the box office in terms of, you know, giving him this job, which is great. Hooray. Hooray. Hooray for him. 
and it's out next year. So yes. yeah, he'll have to work fast. Get a move on. Not hooray for one other thing. It's, have you seen the Ferris Bueller spin-off? I have. News, which is absolutely yeah. wild. So it finally, I didn't even know it was happening, but it is happening and it has a director and it's David Katzenberg. And uh, this is Victor, Sam and Victor's day off. And if you're wondering who yes. the fuck Sam and Victor are, they are the two valets who steal Cameron's dad's GTO when they park it yeah. and go for a Star Wars themed joyride. And now, finally, because we've all been asking this question for decades, finally we will understand what they did during those few precious hours when the car was in their care. I have some questions. <laughs> and none of them are, what did they do during those few hours? <laughs> They're not really, no. But look, it, it's it's weird enough that maybe it's a good way to do it. I, I, I just, I do remember that scene. That scene does stick in my head. Yeah. Although it helps that I've seen Ferris Bueller like 20 million yeah. times. Um, and maybe it's unconnected enough that they can do something fun and interesting uh, with it. But I'm, I'm like, does why it, do that? Why do that? When because instead, we could have an origin story for Abe Froman, the Sausage King of Chicago. That is a film I would watch. <laughs> of course Because, James, a Hollywood maxim is strike while the iron's hot. <laughs> and the iron is never hotter than nearly 40 years <laughs> after a movie came out. I'm intrigued by, we have to know how many miles they went. It was, it was quite a lot of miles, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it was. That they were trying to rewind mm -hmm. when things went horribly wrong. I, I just, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, that's not the thing I'm most excited about this week, if I'm honest. What's the thing you're most excited about this well, week? Well, I mean, the thing, we've already actually talked about it, but I think there are more exciting things. The Borderlands trailer. I haven't seen it yet, and obviously that's very much up my alley. It is very much. It looks very much like here is a computer game, I believe, yes. that is along the lines of Guardians of the Galaxy, though it predates the film, I know that. <laughs> but it, it feels like that, that. that's what I'm seeing in this trailer is yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy energy, like big Guardians of the Galaxy energy. The trailer is Guardians of the Galaxy and uh, the Suicide Squad had a knee trembler in a cupboard. And yes. this is the And what result. if Hell and Baby Gamora teamed up with Kevin Hart to do something or other. I don't really know what. It's Jumanji meets... Yeah. It's... Guardians. It's Kate Blanchett entering her fuck it, why not phase. <laughs> and I'm very much here for that alone. I don't know if it will be good. It does look a little bit too Guardians-y, maybe, in the sense of not having its own... It original feeling but I'm hoping that I'm wrong on that and I will tell you why not only does it have Kate Blanchett who reminder has I think two Oscars they had Kate Blanchett with the budget and Jamie Lee Curtis who has one Oscar it also has secret weapon Ariana Greenblatt who is in Avengers Endgame who is in Barbie who is very very lucky for filmmakers who's she's young she Gamora she's young Gamora no, but who does she play she's a like weapons person in this I Tiny gather, Tina does she play Tiny Tina I don't know you were asking exactly the wrong person. So you're excited about this? this you know, you know. Oh yeah, you know I played, I played all the games. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So do you know who Lilith is? Yes. Okay. So that's she's a siren. She's the character that I played in the original Borderlands. She is Tiny Tina. I've just yes! read a story about Tiny, it. Tiny Tina's great. Okay. Well, there we go. Uh, yeah, no, it's fun. I love those games. They have an absolutely anarchic tone to them. They had this uh, very distinctive kind of cell shaded uh, visual quality, but it's a, it, was, it was a kind of multiplayer co op looter shooter that I used to play mm. with a few people from the Empire office way way back in the day. A friend uh, explained yeah. to me that basically. The appeal of the game was it has 70 million types of gun. Yeah, and, and every time you pick up a gun, ooh, a new gun! And that happens every three seconds.
Jones. Okay, so James, uh, so Kate Blanchett is Lilith. Yes. Uh, Ariana Greenblatt is Tiny Tina. Yes. Jack Black voices Claptrap. Claptrap, the little robot thing. Is yeah. anyone playing Handsome Jack? Uh, uh, it doesn't seem to be listed on the cast. But he may not be in it. He's a villain in, in some of them. They won't be. Oh well, hang Kevin, on. Edgar Ramirez is Atlas as is the villain. Okay. Uh, Kevin Hart plays Roland. Uh, yes, Roland is yes one of the yeah one of the original. Jamie Lee Curtis Vault is Hunters. Tannis. I can't. Is she? Okay. No, I think I think I remember who that is. She's it's a been scientist. a while. Uh, okay. But it's another interesting thing about this movie in which the which is basically that it's shot along time ago a long time ago in a galaxy and it's directed far, far by away. Eli Roth apparently there were major reshoots that he was not present for oh, okay. but there have been conflicting reports about whether he was okay with not being present for them because he had to uh, make Thanksgiving his priority so he was okay with them doing that um, but he certainly seems to be getting behind this on Instagram So, and it is still being billed as an Eli Roth movie mm. So, and Tim Miller did the reshoots Tim De- Miller did Deadpool's the reshoots yes. Tim Miller so, yes. so well we've got to hope for the best but it looks, it's a really good trailer I was, I had fun I yeah I've given, given how troubled I was led to believe this production was by the trades then I was very very pleasantly surprised and I will always root for my boy Eli last thing this week is that the Kang Dynasty <laughs> is no longer the Kang Dynasty. What the a Kang, shock! The Kang Colbys. <laughs> oh, oh, Jesus boy. Christ. That was... It's topical. Topical That's reference. So the Falcon Crest is right there, for the love of God. <laughs> but the, the Kang's Crest just feels abstract. The oh Kang's Falcon. The Kang's Falcon Crest. Oh, my God. The Kang's God. Dallas. I don't know. Can someone Falcon shut him up, please? Uh, yes. So this is from a report on the kind of the current state of the MCU uh, in the Hollywood Reporter, and they're saying that although nothing's official, nothing's been announced, nothing's been confirmed, that Marvel Studios are no longer referring to Avengers Five as the Kang Dynasty, despite having announced it as a Kang Dynasty uh, to much fanfare a few years ago, and even having a director, Daniel mm. Destin Cretton, and a writer. Uh, Jeff Loveness uh, both of whom have since departed Michael Waldron is currently writing the screenplay and then of course Avengers 6 is meant to be Secret Wars which is the big multiversal conclusion to the multiverse saga what they do now and where they go with this I still have no idea but uh, it felt this felt inevitable like Thanos like Thanos Thanos. it was inevitable Okay, let's have our final guest this week, and it is Fim Fenders, the legendary Fim Fenders, the German director of films like Wings of Desire and Paris, Texas, and uh, Until the End of the World. And now he's back, back, back with this week's sensational Perfect Days, which is about the daily life of a toilet attendant in Tokyo, Japan. And as you might expect, if I... Uh, and as you might expect from a Fim Fenders movie, is just drenched, bedecked liberally in amazing, amazing songs. And so, uh, Ian Freer, we sent Ian Freer along to have a nice chat with Fim Fenders in a London hotel room recently. And they talked about a whole ton of things. They talked about music. They talked about Japan. They talked about Colombo. They talked about, I think because I was in the room and Ian wanted to <laughs> throw me a bone. And uh, also they talked about an amazing pick that Vim Vendors took. Enjoy. Vim Vendors, welcome to the Empire Podcast. How are you, sir? I'm fine, Ian, and yourself? Very good, thank you. Very good. It's a rainy day in London, and we're here to talk about Perfect Days, your terrific new movie. But um, there's something I've always wanted to ask you. Uh, in the room where I write, I have a photograph of Akira Kurosawa and Francis Coppola in a garden, 
and I believe you took that photograph. I did. What is the story of that photograph? The photograph was taken in the summer of 1978. Kurosawa was in California to run up support by Francis and a couple of other American filmmakers. I think George Lucas was there. Spielberg was helping them. They were trying to raise money for Kurosawa's new, new movie with an American studio because his previous film had so failed dramatically in Japan. Okay. So Kurosawa was there, and Francis had invited him to come out to Napa Valley. Right. And he had sent his big, a little vintage Mercedes 600 to pick up Kurosawa in San Francisco to drive him to Napa Valley. That Mercedes 600 is the so-called Pope Mobile. <laughs> there weren't many of them. Okay. It was a little vintage. Okay. Tom Luddy was the head of the mission to bring Kurosawa out to, to Napa Valley. There was Tom, Kurosawa, and his translator. There was another person there. I forgot, a lady. And me, I was invited by Francis to be on the trip, and and I was glad to come. And as a last second, I jumped out of the car just before we started to drive to Napa Valley to, as an afterthought, get my camera. I felt there was something I could do with my Russian Horizon cam camera. It was a panoramic camera. And luckily I had taken it because halfway down the road, the car broke down. It was in the middle of the summer. It was very hot. It was overheated. First, the air conditioning gave up and everybody took off their jackets. It was damn hot in the car. Even Korzawa took off his jacket. And then the car just gave up, period. It didn't move anymore. Luckily, we were not in the middle of nowhere, but there was a country fair. And... In the biggest tent, there were the Latin playboys, uh, um, Cajun act. And to a great surprise, we also found our good old friend Les Blank, yeah. who was shooting with the Latin yeah, playboys. Yeah, so Les Blank uh, documented Werner Herzog's Fitzcarraldo. Yeah, yeah that the Burden is, of Dreams. Yeah. Exactly. Les Blank, who had made Burden of Dreams, was there shooting with the Cajun band, and he had his truck standing there. So Tom Luddy talked him into emptying his truck of all the equipment and loaning his truck so we'd continue the journey. <laughs> Kurosawa was sort of walking around on the country fair. Some people wanted to take their picture with him. I took a lot of photographs of Kurosawa, sort of a little desperately looking at the Mercedes. It, there was no way it was going to work again. So finally, we ended the trip all sitting in Les Black's pretty dumpy car. <laughs> and Francis was horrified when we landed in Napa Valley and when this crummy car arrived on his porch and he stood there in order to welcome Kurosawa and Kurosawa crawled out of Les Blanc's <laughs> Chevrolet. <laughs> That's a lovely story. <laughs> and, and it ended very nicely because it was damn hot and later in the afternoon we all sat around a little pool in the garden under the trees, everybody had taken their shirts off. Everybody had taken a bath in the pool, except for Kurosawa. He did not go into the water. He wanted to keep his shirt and his tie on. 
And I took that picture of Francis and Kurosawa in very good spirits, joking. That's lovely. Yeah. What a lovely story. Thank you so much. Uh, let's talk about Perfect Days. Uh, there's a lot of talk about this movie is your best movie for ages. Do you, do you feel that sense? Do you feel that? It's not up to me to judge because yeah. like any parents or filmmaker, I love my failed movies <laughs> <laughs> like you love your failed children. <laughs> and so it's not up to me to judge whether it's a successful film or whether I did well. I loved shooting it. It was a great experience. And it was, I received this movie almost as a gift. You know, it came out of a very different proposition of making a documentaries or several little documentary featurettes on Japanese architects and their tiny creations, these amazing toilets they built. Yeah. Normally they built banks and museums, and now they're all built, 15 of them, the smallest possible unit for an architect, a public toilet. And, and that's why I was invited to come in the first place. But then I decided not to make these featurettes on the toilets and the architects, but I felt there was something much bigger to do in Tokyo at the time. And I felt there was, it was just post-pandemic, and, and I felt there was something with more urgency to be told. And I suggested to the producers, instead of doing four featurettes and documentary films, we should do a real movie, a, a fictional film, about a caretaker of these toilets. And yeah. this would give me a chance to really say much more also about Tokyo and Japan. And also these toilets would appear more more better, so to speak, yeah. in a fictional context yeah. than in documentary. Context. It should be said, Japanese toilets are amazing, aren't they? They are They're amazing. So great. Yeah. And these are very welcoming and they greet you when you come in and the lid opens before you don't even have to do it. And then you sit on a warm, uh, uh, well, I won't describe all the pleasures. It's really. <laughs> yeah, people should go. Just <laughs> people should go. Yeah. And it's a whole different experience. And it's actually part of that culture. In here and over in Europe, toilets are not exactly part of our culture. They are rather part of our non culture. So, anyway, they. I thought I'd talk myself out of a good job by by saying I'm not going to do these documentaries. Let me do something else instead. And they liked my idea. And they said, well, then only what you need them is probably a good script and an actor. And I said, exactly. Yeah. And that was the beginning of Perfect Days. And what were the, the personal cause in it for you? What the the, the things that really uh, represent you in the film? I thought it should be a film about the longing that we all had during the pandemic to do life a little bit differently afterwards. At least me, during these whole two years of seclusion and of not traveling, I thought we should all live a little differently afterwards. It would help us. And those who had too much should maybe not have all that much anymore, and those who had too little should maybe have a little more. And so I figured... As humanity, we would learn from this worldwide pandemic and think things over. But it didn't happen with the opposite. <laughs> it got worse. And in Tokyo, when I was there and saw these toilets for the first time, it, it just so happened that it was when the people of Tokyo came back from the longest lockdown in history of any big city, almost two years. And the way that happened was so civilized, and it was so beautiful to see how they respected their public places. 
yeah. contrary to what had happened, what I had seen in Europe, especially in my own city, where the biggest victim of the pandemic was the sense of the of the common good. Yeah. And not in Tokyo. And the opposite. It was it was heartwarming how well that sense had survived. And that's what I wanted to make my movie about. And the person of the caretaker seemed the ideal character. So we invented our man Hirayama and wrote a script and it was mm. it was a beautiful experience in so far as we realized we can't make a movie about a man who is reducing himself and who is living a minimal life. He doesn't own much. He's taken all the slack off and he's just he just has what he really needs. It's his books and some and his old music. He found his cassettes in the in the basement. Yeah. And those were the music that was the music he heard when he was a young man and he figured that was the best thing in his life and he liked it better than anything afterwards and probably when he was a businessman later he didn't listen to music so he dug out his cassettes and his cassette recorder and he had his books and that's all he is he lives in an empty place with nothing there's a lovely story about your your love of music uh do you, is it true where that when you went into record shops you wore a mac like colombo i can now because i probably the german police don't listen nobody, to this podcast they, nobody, they famously don't listen nobody to this is, podcast Nobody is arrest going to arrest me now. Yeah. I couldn't afford all these records. I mean, I was a post student. I, I gained a, f a few, a few extra pounds by writing film criticism, but that wasn't much. So I invented the code to steal vinyl. <laughs> you just so had you open to, up a big, big pocket. Huge I had pocket, to. So. I sewed myself a huge pocket into which a vinyl would just perfectly fit. And I did steal quite a lot of vinyl until one day I was ashamed and just gave it all up and decided never to steal anymore. But for a while, for a couple of years, that's how I uh, entertained my habit. Okay. And <laughs> So, can I tell you that film criticism still doesn't pay any more money? There's no money in film criticism. <laughs> yes, already at the time, already at the time, you could write as long as you want. It wasn't good enough, <laughs> so you could not live on yeah. it. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, that code also doesn't exist anymore. It, okay. It it got too flimsy after a while. But but spe speaking of that code, um, our producer Chris is a huge fan of Columbo, and uh, uh, you obviously worked with Peter Falk on Wings of Desire. What are, you, what are your most vivid memories of, of Peter Falk? <laughs> he was really fun. But I, people haven't seen the film, he's kind of playing himself, isn't he? He's playing Colombo. Yeah. People <laughs> call him Colombo. He's playing himself. With a little twist in the film, he is an ex angel. He used to be mm. a guardian angel and became human, like our main character, Bruno Ganz. So Bruno recognized recognizes him and finds out that they are sort of have an affinity and then eventually um, Columbus, Peter Fox's character, tell, tells him, well, I did the jump myself a while ago. So we start thinking that maybe other people are former angels and that they are around. So his part was sort of funny and we wrote it into the script because our angels by themselves were a little too serious and they needed somebody to stir up the game. And yeah. so Peter came, we wrote his part 
practically overnight in a in on a weekend session and and little did I know that he was not really intending to follow any written lines, but <laughs> he was as I knew from the Casavetes films he had made before the three Casavetes, yeah. he was a great he had a great talent for improvisation and yeah. Casavetes had made all three films in a row strictly based on improvisation. And in the end I had gotten to Peter Falk through through John Cassavetes, who had given me his number. So I knew I had invited somebody who was thriving on improvisation. And very soon, my two German actors, Bruno Ganz and Otto Sander, found out that Peter Falk intended to continue to improvise. (laughs) And they were scared of him because they were in no way able to follow his improvisation. Because first of all, their American was, their English was not good enough. And secondly, they had no training in improvisation. So they always had sweats on their forehead as soon as it was another scene with Peter. But he was lovely, and he carried them through, and and he stayed with us for 10 days in Berlin, and those were the most fun days of the entire shoot. And in between takes, he would wander off, and then he wouldn't come back (laughs) because he had no sense of orientation. Yeah. So after a while, after we missed the whole scene because Peter was just not there anymore and we actually looked for him with police. And then we decided to put somebody on his heels and also always follow him from the other side of the street to know where he was. And eventually we would, he would bring him back to the set. He was a wanderer. He loved strolling around Berlin. That's lovely. What a lovely story. I'm going to end on a flippant question. Uh, you created one of my f- favorite movie titles of all time, which is The Goalkeeper's Fear of the Penalty. <laughs> so I want to ask you, who is the greatest German goalkeeper? If, my, if you're my age, it's Sepp Meyer. Sepp Meyer was very, very good. Um, before Sepp Meyer, when my home team was still any good... Who's your home team? Who is it? Fortuna Dusseldorf. Okay. The keeper of Fortuna Düsseldorf was legendary, Tony Turek. He was the goalkeeper of the German team who won the first world championship in the 50s. And he was Tony Turek. And I was a little boy and I shook his hands and I stood in front of him. And that was the only goalkeeper I've of any renown in Germany that I ever shook hands with. So he's still my hero. Sepp Meyer was fabulous. Yeah. And I do think that Neuer is a great successor. Yeah. More podcasts should end on chat about German goalkeepers. Yes, yes. I'm ready to follow any, to end any of your podcasts with a little note on one of our goalkeepers. Vimezer, thank you very much. Thank what a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, that was Film Vendors. And now let's start the reviews section of the show. And we'll start by talking about Perfect Days. Hellspells, sadly, regrettably, I have not seen this yet. I really, really want to because it sounds right up my boulevard. Mm, it is a gorgeous film. Perfect by name, perfect by nature, as far as I'm concerned. So this is, you know, we look, I talked last week about the taste of things and the sort of meditative you know, slow quality of that, just putting you into the sensory nature of everyday life. And there's something similar going on here. Koji Yakusho stars as Hirayama, who uh, cleans toilets in Japan, in Tokyo. Now, I will say, 
just straight up, not every public toilet in Japan looks like this, but these are part of the Tokyo project, which is where architects were brought in to make these extraordinary looking public facilities. And this guy basically gets up every morning, gets, you know, brushes his teeth, puts his clothes on, gets in his van, looks at the sky, listens to some music he loves, and then goes and does a really good job of cleaning these public facilities for people. And that's kind of mostly the movie. Uh, the first hour in particular, I cannot stress enough, is nothing else really happening. This is him going about his day, finding grace and peace and joy and beauty in the little moments in, you know, that that happen when they happen, you know. So uh so literally just looking up the sky every morning. When he goes for lunch, he will sit under the trees and he might even take a picture of the way the trees are framing the sky today. And he has boxes and boxes of these pictures in his house. He has a moment of of connection or or conversation almost with a monk. And you you genuinely sense that these guys are on a level, on a par. He feels so kind of zen about his life. And it's the way that I think a lot of us probably would like to be would like to take pleasure and take joy in the small moments. I certainly try to, and I feel like it makes my life better when I manage it. Um, but it is, it's just a gorgeous film. It just reminds you how much beauty there is in the world. He is the kind of guy who will, you know, just be smiling at a dog or a baby uh, going past or, or you know, admiring a pretty flower and this kind of stuff. I mean, literally when he has to stop his work in the middle because somebody actually needs to use the facilities, he just takes a moment to kind of, you know, look up and admire the weather or whatever. He's just a really inspiring person and he's a really lovely person to spend time with. There is, and I use the term in the loosest possible sense, a bit more plot in the second half where his niece comes to visit and so on. There's a there's a whole mini subplot with his kind of slightly comical co-worker. But really, it's about mood, it's about atmosphere, it's about this character, and it is absolutely and utterly gorgeous. Uh, Yukusho actually won, I think, Best Actor, was it Cannes? He won Best Actor Prize, and mm -hmm. deservedly so. This is just a, 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 an incredible performance. You just want to go up and hug this guy, he's lovely. Um, but it's also... It's it's so nice. I It reminded me very much of Patterson, which if you remember, I went nuts for a few years ago. That was the Adam Driver driving a bus movie and occasionally writing poetry, and that's all that happened in the entire movie. Um, it's like that. Nothing happens. I cannot stress that enough, but you will have such a nice time with nothing happening. We gave it four stars. I would go five. I think it's beautiful. Excellent stuff. Excellent stuff. Four stars then for perfect days. Uh, next up, we have Memory. Might as well get the films starring this week's guests uh, out of the way nice and early. Memory, Jimbo. Indeed, memory. So this is the new film from Michelle Franco, as you have already heard. Now, something I probably want to state on this is like, if you go onto the IMDb and you look at this film, as many people would do when they're deciding mm -hmm. what to see a film, IMDb, as you may or may not know, has plot summary kind of keywords. So it has, it has like themes that it puts on there. The themes it lists for this film are incest, stalker, child sexual abuse, female child rape, and pubic hair. Now, all of these things do technically feature in this film, but I kind of think that that would put off a lot of people, including myself, you know. Uh, but this is not maybe, and don't get me wrong, this is not a laugh fest, but this is not what I would call a horribly traumatic film. And I think, you know, people going in expecting that, or in fact, 
the opposite. People avoiding it because they want to avoid that, I think we'll be missing out on something actually quite special. So this is the story of Jessica Chastain, Sylvia, uh, as you've kind of already heard. But she works in adult daycare. She is a very guarded person. She sets the alarm as soon as she goes into her Brooklyn flat. She's fiercely protective of her young daughter, Sarah, who's played by Brooke Timber. Uh, she doesn't allow her to date. She doesn't allow her to drink. She's incredibly wary. Um, and has a slightly sort of fractious relationship with her younger sister, played by Merritt Weather. Uh, and then on the other hand, you have Peter Sarsgaard's character, and he is suffering from early-onset dementia. Uh, and one day, Sylvia goes to a high school reunion, and Peter Sarsgaard's character, Saul, follows her back to her apartment from the reunion. She's very unsettled by this. She sees him down at her window. She's really, really nervous. Then she finds him essentially sort of asleep in the rain. There's clearly something wrong with him, and she calls, uh, essentially calls his carer, who is actually his brother, and finds out that he has dementia. Now, she went through a number of sort of abusive situations as a child, and one of them was she was abused by a boy at her school. She believes she she identifies Peter Sarsgaard's character as one of the boys who abused her at school. Oh, wow. And that is kind of the setup for the situation, but it is far more complicated than that. Um, it turns out, for one reason or another, that he may not be the person she thought he was. And actually, what this embarks upon is a very unusual, unorthodox, slightly broken love story. It's a romance more than anything, but not something that I think easily carries that mantle. It doesn't have the livery or the tone of what you would normally expect from, from a romantic film, but that is what it is. It is to Two very real, very damaged, uh, very broken people trying to sort of find a connection with each other with very difficult circumstances as both of their background. There is mm. no score whatsoever in this film. A mom would fucking hate it. Um, <laughs> the camera is incredibly static as well. And the performances by both Sarsgaard, who is dealing obviously with the fact that he is losing his mind and the fact that his brother, uh, who is kind of well-meaning but somewhat hard-hearted, uh, played by Josh Charles, mm. that, you know, it, it, that relationship is quite upsetting and quite brutal as well. But between that, there's, there's something really sweet and quite lovely about the relationship between them and look, there are really difficult scenes in this 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 should carry all the trigger warnings because you know her dealing with her abuse and when she talks about her abuse she has a mother who never believed her and there's a confrontation scene with her which is again quite difficult to watch and there's another character in this who is almost more punchable who is kind of her brother-in-law who simply doesn't allow that kind of thing to be discussed because he sees it as unseemly to kind of mm. mention those kind of things so I mean you will want to commit acts of violence against a number of people in this film but beneath it is this beautiful beautiful story and the performances are absolutely exquisite Chastain in particular in a couple of scenes is so moving like it it really does it has a real sort of emotional punch to it like it may well bring you to tears it might traumatise you slightly but it mm. doesn't and Michelle Franco has a habit of you know quite literally hitting you with a car at the end of his films uh, and uh, he doesn't with this I will say it's not a traumatic film in its entirety it won't leave you absolutely shell-shocked and feeling bleak it is rough in places but it has a it has a it has, an, it has a sort of a beautiful core to it mm. so even though its keywords thematically are shall we say problematic th there's something really nice here so I thought this was great yeah I would concur uh, with that I thought that the performances were excellent uh, Peter Sarsgaard yeah strangely wasn't in the Oscar running despite winning the Best Actor Award at the Venice Film Festival I which think, is I think it didn't get the push it needed maybe a yeah. lot of the smaller films suffer because the voters just don't go see them they do this is true um, and shame on them mm. shame on them quite frankly because it's a phenomenal performance and a very very affecting film indeed four stars then for memory 
Uh, back to you now, Hell's Bells, to talk about wicked little letters. Cover your ears, folks. It's earmuffs time because this is the sweariest movie oh. of the year. Padded to the motherfucking Peru, probably. <laughs> Might knock it off its perch. Yes, it is, you foxy arsed whore. How dare Look, you? I'm just you trying to get Otter Melon Farmer. <laughs> I'm just trying to get into character. So, this is unbelievably based on a true story that did happen in the 1920s and I believe Littlehampton. And uh, basically, in a small seaside town, people started getting extremely rude letters, not just using bad language, but also accusing them of all manner of uh, impropriety, frankly. And mm -hmm. uh, one of the people who got lots of these letters uh, was Edith Swan, Olivia Coleman's character, who uh, was a, a sort of lady of a certain age, still living at home with her, frankly, overbearing parents, and in particular, her absolute monster of a dad, played by Timothy Spall. And... Um, she starts getting these letters and instantly knows who to blame. It is Rose who lives next door. She is a single mother. She is no better than she should be. She is played by Jessie Buckley. She enjoys swearing and drinking and staying out late and having a boyfriend, played by Malachi Kirby. And uh, and it's obvious that she is the culprit. Uh, so she is literally arrested. This is criminal libel, not just civil libel. She's arrested and the police, uh, the, the male police at least, are basically convinced of her guilt because just look at her. I mean, come on. Um, luckily for <laughs> her, and Jana Vassan, who plays uh, a, a sort of radical new thing called a police woman, <laughs> um, <laughs> suspects that something may be amiss and actually starts to investigate to see if Rose is actually guilty. And uh, guilty. and some, some truths come to light uh, and maybe it, maybe she isn't. I mean, no spoilers, you can probably guess if you've even seen the trailer. It's very funny, this film. I really did have a lovely time watching it. There's some really fun bits. Jesse Buckley and Olivia Coleman, who of course appeared in The Lost Daughter, but never had any scenes together because they were playing the same woman at different times in her life. They clearly had an absolute ball working together. They're just so much fun when the two of them are on screen. Um, Olivia Coleman, you know... Oscar winner now, serious actress now, but she still does have her comedy chops and she's oh, yeah. really, really funny in this. So I had a lovely time watching it. My only kind of issues with it were is that it tries to touch on a huge number of very real issues about reputation, about small-time prejudice, small-mindedness, um, religiosity and piety or performative piety, sexism, discrimination, uh, anti-Irish prejudice... All of these things kind of feed into this kind of febrile mix that leads to Rose being accused. And the film does want to draw your attention to all of them and it wants to give Anjana Vasana the, the chance to talk about sexism in, in the police and how, how her character is treated by the men around her. And that's good and I applaud all of that and I agree with many of these issues and I want them to be discussed. But at the same time, the film is kind of doesn't really give any of them a lot of time because it's sort of like running in six different directions at once. So everything feels a little bit underdeveloped in that respect. It can feel a little bit messy. But it, it does also have, you know, a lot of swearing, which is also quite big and quite clever. James, this might be your film of the year. Yeah, I'm, I, I mean, mean, yeah, you're, you're, you're definitely, you might be like, 100% the, in. you might be the first five minutes of Four Weddings and a Funeral where it's just <laughs> Hugh Grant saying fuck. Right, it's like that, but for the whole movie. Amazing. Five yeah. stars, Empire. I mean, well, actually three stars, but a really what? warm, glowing three stars. Surely four stars. I mean, well, in the middle of the word, I four guess. Four asterisks. It's, it's, yeah, it's three, yeah, it's three stars in the middle of the world, word with like a letter on either side. Yeah. This is a disgraceful oversight. <laughs>
words will be had. I'm sure they will. Four Naughty words. <laughs> yeah. I'll be writing to my MP. Uh, three stars then for Wicked Little Letters, directed by Thea Sharrock, yes. uh, we should say, who should also has another film out at the, the end of this month. Oh, wow. At the end of March, more accurately, because we're still in February. Uh, I'm in tour mode, uh, which is The Beautiful Game, starring Bill Nye about oh football. So prolific. Let's talk about overachieving. That's prolific. Yeah. yeah, that'll probably be less sweary. I'm, I'm I, guessing. I mean, I would imagine, but he's quite good at swearing at the same he time. He is so quite good at swearing, indeed. Uh, finally, this week, we have someone else who's amazing at swearing. Oh. Uh, maybe this is a question for <laughs> another another podcast. Who is the best swearer in movie history? Because, and not, well, movie and TV history, because I would say that Ian McShane mm. is pretty fucking good at swearing. But yes, this is American Star starring Ian McShane as John Wick. <laughs> What's, no, what's going on here? But also not not no. Okay. I mean, yeah. So he <laughs> that wasn't helpful of me, was it? No, it wasn't. Um, he plays Wilson and Wilson is the volleyball. And no, but he does, you know, go near the sea. Okay. So he is a hitman. Um, getting on in years, obviously, as is indeed, I'm sorry to say, Ian McShane himself. And um, he's, you know, not having maybe the best time with his job anymore. He is sent to Fuerteventura in the Canary Islands mm-hmm. um, to kill somebody. Oh and no. He gets there and the dude he's meant to kill isn't there. So he's like, you know what, I'm going to just hang out here and you let me know when he turns up and I'm going to go kill him. But in the meantime, I'm just going to check into this hotel near the beach and talk to this little kid who's staying with his very, very poor parents, as in bad parents, um, across the hall from me. And I'm going to I'm going to talk to him occasionally, give him some life advice. And I'm going to befriend the waitress at the bar down the road. And I'm just going to go looking for this shipwreck that, you know, is somewhere nearby on the island. And, and let me know when I need to kill somebody. And that's basically the... That's basically it. That's basically the idea. So it's him hanging out, waiting around to kill somebody uh, with the slight complication that in the middle of this, his sort of, I guess, coming kind of nephew, the, the son of his his long lost best friend, um, who's played by Adam Negatis, uh, uh-huh. turns up. Anytime you see Adam Negatis, you think he's going to be a bad one. Now, no spoilers. <laughs> But he's not a good one here. Right. Okay. Um, he, he was the he was the absolute shithead, if you remember, in the terror. If you saw the terror, he's oh, usually yes, a shithead. Yes, yes, um, yes. Anyway, uh, so he he turns up at one point. Uh, Fanny Ardant plays the mother of his waitress friend, who's played by Nora uh, Arnazeder. It's all directed, I thought, rather well by Gonzalo Lopez Gallego. Um, and it's just kind of a meditative, again, that word again, film about just hanging out, spending time, that kind of limbo in-between period. Yes. Um, there's clearly a weird sense of almost recognition when Wilson finds the shipwreck, the American star shipwreck that he's been looking for. Mm-hmm. And he's like, that's me, that is. <laughs> a little bit. Do you know what I mean? It's that kind of a film. It's it's a film about what do you do when you're kind of getting past what you do in life. Um, and you don't know what else you have. Gotcha. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's a film kind of about saying goodbye. I, I liked it. I, I thought it was pretty good. I did go in with very low expectations, but then you remember that Ian McShane's really good at what he does he in is. the sense of acting, not killing people. And, um, and swearing. And swearing. And he's just, he's a good, he's an interesting dude to hang out with. I had a really, really nice time with this one. Man's a ruddy legend. He really is. He's a ruddy legend. He's Al Swearingen. He's uh, Winston. He's love joy joy for the love of Christ. (laughs) Honestly, give the man his flowers, that's what I say. 
He's in his eighties now, isn't he? He's yeah, I believe. Yeah, his character's eighty-one. I assume he's about the same. Yeah, I think he is. I think he is. I'm just going to double check. Eighty-two. Eighty-two years old. This year, at least. Oh my word. Anyway, so yeah, Good we stuff. we don't have, seem to have an Empire review yet. All right. Okay. I would probably be three, very solid three. Three McShaneys. Yeah. Three stuff. fucking stars uh, for American Star. Hey everyone, it's Chris here and just jumping in real quick because I completely forgot to set up this week's third and final guest. My apologies both to you and to the guest who is Fernando Morelis, the amazing Brazilian director of the epic and classic City of God, which is being given a 21st anniversary re-release this week in cinemas. If you haven't already seen this movie, I strongly urge you to go and see it. It is a five-star stone-cold classic slash masterpiece. It is a crime epic set in the favelas of Rio de Janeiro, and it is just absolutely wonderful. And so we leapt at the chance to talk to Morelish, who also went on to direct the likes of The Constant Gardener and Blindness, on Zoom this week. In fact, Dan Jolin, City of God mega fan, is the man who had the chance to talk to Fernando Morelish, and here is their interview. It is really, really fascinating. Do please enjoy. And go see City of God after the interview. Enjoy. Fernando, thank you so much uh, for joining us on this on this 21st birthday of the... Let me get this right. It's the 21st birthday of the international release of City of God. That's correct, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not counting anymore. <laughs> I remember the last time we spoke, the, the, the last time I met you, and I apologise, you know, it's it's it was so long ago, was actually in 2002. So, so you know, 22 years ago, almost, at the Cannes Film Festival, where uh, City of God debuted. And um, I, I remember seeing it, and it just leapt out to me. I mean, it was a good year for Cannes that year, uh, but uh, it just leapt out to me, and I was just like, oh, my God, this this film everyone must see this film. It just completely spoke to me. And I remember meeting you there and raving to you about it there and, and, and everything. But what's your memory of, of that film, you know, just finally being seen by people outside of Brazil and, and, their, and their response to it? Yeah, I had no idea that the film was going to be so well received. Hmm. And, and when I went to Cannes, uh, Canal Plus was distributing the film and they liked the film. So as a strategy... They said we won't talk any. We want to say anything about the film. Let the mm. the, the journalists discover the film. Yeah. And so all all they would know is there was a poster, my name that nobody knew who who was, and some some name of the actors that nobody knew as well, and that was it. So I went to Cannes and I had fourteen interviews scheduled for the whole week. So I planned all the films I wanted to see, and it was going to be a great week. But after the screening that you're mentioning, I mean, like. I was I was in the garden, I remember, with my wife. Like five minutes later, they start uh, calling, asking for interview. In the end, I, I did like, uh, I think, 100 and, 158 interviews. <laughs> I spent the whole week in, with interviews from 8 in the morning to 8 at night. And uh, the film really exploded. And I, come, I came from Cannes with uh, 14 scripts to consider if I wanted to direct. It was really... I wasn't prepared for that. I was just making a film that I was passionate about in Brazil with unknown actors, first first time uh, crew, 
first-time writer, first-time uh, editor, first-time first assistant, me, a first-time myself. I had made just a very small film before that. Mm. Anyway, it was a big surprise. It's astonishing. I mean, you know, I, 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 I re-watched it a couple of nights ago, um, and it hasn't lost any of its any of its strength or its power, but it was interesting re-watching because I think a lot of the reviews were... Um, there were a lot of comparisons with Goodfellas. You know, there's a voiceover and it's about gangsters. And, and, and that made perfect sense to me. And and, and also re-watching it, I thought, actually, it's kind of Tarantino-esque. Not so much in the, the, the characters or the themes, but in the style of it. You know, the, the division into chapters and the way that it keeps jumping backwards. You know, like every now and again, you get someone mentioned, oh, we're not going to tell their story yet. And, you know, that, that sort of approach. And I wondered... If that was in your head, whether or not there was any level of calibrating it for an international audience, you know, through those kinds of references and influences. Yeah. Goodfellas was an influence for sure. I mean, I yeah. was a big fan of Scorsese. And and the film City of God has to do with, with uh, Goodfellas because, of, as you said, the narration. And the guy who narrates is not, is not the main character, you know. Yeah. Like in City of God, Rocket narrates the story, but it's really about Little Z and 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 the city, not like in Goodfellas. I mean, just in the the end, the narrator becomes the the, the main character. In the beginning, it's really about the mafia. He's just an observer. So that's that. We we have the same kind of uh, feeling in City of God. Yeah. Now Tarantino, I I don't, I don't remember watching Tarantino talking. No, of course I watched the films. Yeah. But uh, talking to my writer about Tarantino was was just uh, just the way that the, the script came out, I guess. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, so you you're talking about you know it basically being a lot of people making this movie for the first time. But I think I think one of the most remarkable things about it and commented at the time was the fact that your cast was almost entirely non professional actors, and not only that, actual kids from the favelas. I, I, you know, that must have been uh, for you and your co-director, Katia uh, Lund. That must have been such a gargantuan task to deal with. To to have to actually, you know, teach them how to act and everything to to to, to even make it happen. I mean, you know, looking back, do you think what what were we thinking, or was it the only way it could have been done? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that that was the only way that it could be done. After we yeah. wrote the script. So I said to myself, I have to create the actors, and I'll try it. If I don't find the actors, I won't make the film. And so we set up a sort of school for acting, not school, it's like a workshop. Yeah. Everyday classes from, from August till, till end of October, beginning of November. We selected 200 boys, split in three different groups, and they would come every day in different um, – now they would come three times a week. So we would split two, two, two groups every day. And then working with the, these boys, rehearsing, we were actually teaching them how to act. They didn't know I was going to make a film. So oh. I was choosing I was choosing the, the cast while we were workshopping. And I was there every day. I mean, I moved to Rio and I was there from, I don't know, nine in the morning till three in the afternoon, watching the boys and, and working with the boys and uh and little by little, I start seeing the actors. Oh, this guy could play this character. So when when I I would spot somebody, say, "Well, this can I don't know. This guy can play little Z." So in the improvisations we would do in the end of the each class, I would ask him to improvise 
scenes that were related to to Little Z. I start testing him as Little Z. He didn't know that. Right. Uh, and in the end of the process, I w- was very clear for me who could play, you know, which character. And yeah. I never changed. I mean, I, the, the choices I, I made in this process was what what you see in the screen. Wow. So it's kind of almost stealth casting in a way. You, you were you were casting, but they they weren't they didn't know that they were being cast. <laughs> yeah, and and they never got the script. That was right. another thing because there was this, such a long process, and and we would we would do some exercises in the beginning, and and then like one third of the class was improvisation. We would give them ideas for a scene. They would split in groups and and try to create little scenes, then come and show to the group, like little uh, theater plays, you know, for the... And the scenes that we're asking them to improvise uh, was scenes that would be in the film. Mm. So they would improvise, of course, some some groups would come with great lines or great ideas, so I would write down, send to my writer in Sao Paulo, and say, so, "Oh, this was great! Try to include." And, and I was, I start stealing ideas, and and uh, they, actually, they were really creating the the story, you know, and uh, and then rehearsing the scenes. I was, uh, I start uh, giving it shape. So I'd say, "Well, this is great. Let's do it again, but don't say all that. Go straight to that line. Repeat that line you said the last time." Hmm. And little by little, they start learning the scenes. They never read the scenes. For them, that that was their own lines, you know. That it was just shaping, and and uh, and that's how the they did. They they never read anything. Mm. Uh, so obviously, Elise Braga, she kind of went to Hollywood, and and Sue George as well. Although I can't remember how established he was as a musician at no, that time. He wasn't a big name, right? That's that's interesting. Yeah, because he would play in bars, or but he wasn't a big name. He became. Right. A, and there are some others, I mean, some other uh, actors from the film that became stars in, in Brazil. Right. So the guy, the guy who played Little Z, the kid, yeah, he's he's quite well known. Is that Douglas Silver who was was that who was Little Dice? Yeah. 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 Right, yeah. yeah. He's he's quite known. Roberta, there's the, who plays Berenice, he's very known. There's quite mm. a few that became proper actors, and now. In this year, uh, actually last year, we shot uh, a TV series for City of God series for yeah for HBO that's coming out next year, and we, we start shooting yeah second season now in, in October. I'm not directing it; mm. I'm a producer, so it's going to come out, and we're using the same actors. The actors that were in the film, we brought them back. The, the ones we didn't kill, the characters we didn't kill. In the oh film. well. Are back and we see them now. What happened with them twenty years later? And so, ah, so this is the sequel then, really? This is yeah, it's a sequel. It's a series. Uh, the idea is to to make three seasons. So the first season happens in in two thousand ten. Mm-hmm. The one we shot. The next one will be seven or eight years later, and the last one will be contemporary. Okay, because there was also City of Men, of course, as well, wasn't there? The the, the TV yeah, show and the movie, sort of spin-off. Yeah, we shot. Yeah, we shot. I think it was four seasons. Yeah, for Global TV in Brazil, which is the biggest TV here, hmm. and uh, was the same. Is the, was the same idea of revealing the the, the life inside favelas, 
but from the point of view of two boys, two young boys, it was very successful. That's why we, we shot four seasons. So, so you mentioned near the start that you got sent, like you got fourteen scripts uh, at the Cannes Film Festival to read. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would have imagined that the, you know, following that, and certainly following the the release of the film the, in in two uh, thousand that you must have been inundated with gangster movies and crime movies and all you know like obviously american set ones i would imagine why didn't you go down that route why didn't you because you clearly you decided not to do that you could have done that i bet but why didn't yeah. you yeah there were some p- period films as well like medieval uh but uh, i wasn't i didn't want to repeat to do the same thing again mm. and i had a project with Braulio, the same writer from city of god <laughs> There was a story set in, in different in, in five continents about globalization, about the, what was happening with the world at the time. And I decided to pursue this, this project. So me and, and, and Brawley, we traveled. We went to Africa, we went to Asia, and you know, to the Middle East, went to, to, to write the story. And, and mm-hmm. that's what I wanted to do. And, and in this journey, I met, I went to London rehearsing for this film. And that's when I met Simon Cheney Williams and uh, the, the producer of The Constant Gardener. I met him by chance in Soho. He was having a coffee, and I, I was with a friend, and he knew he knew Simon. So, hey, Simon, this is a friend of mine. He said, oh, I know your film. I love it. I have a script. I want to read it. And so he went up, brought the script, I read. Next day, I said, I loved it. And, and that's why I directed The Constant Gardener. And after the constant garner, I, I mean, the other project was just, I mean, too far away. I got other invitations, and and I never shot the film I wanted to shoot. This this global about globalization. But now I'm yes. trying to do it again. It's a different film. It's on on, on climate, yeah, on, on climate crisis, climate crisis, and I'm trying to to make it. Well, that's good because I rem- I I distinctly remember you telling me that that was going to be your next film. Like in two thousand and two, yeah, you told me that would be your next film. Yeah, and it was a great script, <laughs> and we travelled a lot, and uh, but it never happened. Right, right. Because you, I mean, you you've it's it's not been. I'm not accusing you of laziness by any means, but it's not. You've not actually had that many other movies. If if you if you go to IMDb, you see, of course, I, I direct things in Brazil. Like this, this the city of men that you mentioned took like yeah. four or five years. So that was directing for TV, right? And then, yeah, and then I made a, a different series for for Brazilian TV, and I produced a lot. And and now thinking uh, back, I think why did I spend so much time producing? And now I'm I'm still producing a lot, but now I'm trying to stop producing. You know, I'm trying to focus on directing. Right. That's interesting because you were like. Uh, you know, you were nominated for a for a best director Oscar for City of God. I mean, that was to me would just mean, you know, why wouldn't you just focus on directing from that point onwards? Yeah, no, and I, I had a, a lot of invitations to to direct other international films or Hollywood or move to Los Angeles, but I wasn't interested. I never wanted to. You know, it wasn't my thing. Hmm. And. Uh, even James Bond, there was a <laughs> oh, wow. I, I did a meeting on a, yeah, they were going to do a, a prequel of James Bond, a young James Bond. Why James Bond became James Bond it was an interesting project, but never, I mean, but I mean, I was supposed to be there, but it never happened. Anyway, that, anyway, that would have been, yeah, that would have been just, interesting. Yeah, 
I, I think I, I didn't pursue this international career because my life is in Brazil. Family, I have a big family, deep roots, and uh, I don't regret. All right. Well, just just to wrap up, just to you know uh, to, to to finish off, I, I I'm just wondering how you you know to sum up how you would describe your relationship with you know the 21 year old city of God now. You know what is it. What does yeah. it mean to you now? You know what? I've never watched it again. The film. No. Last time I watched it, yeah. Last time I watched it was in 2022. And then I said, enough is enough. And I've never watched it again. But now, uh, I just two months ago, I just scanned the whole, the, all the footage. And, uh, and I'm going to recut and probably uh, cut a uh, director's version to re release it in two years. The image is much, it's amazing because the, the image we have in Seed of God is really it's crap. It's, it's terrible because we shot in 16 millimeters yeah. and we transferred to video and then we transferred to film again. It's, it's a wrong process. So it was a, an SD video, not even HDs, SD video that we filmed with a camera and became film again. So it's really bad image. And now I was watching the, the, the new scanned images this is a different film so we're gonna cut this film probably a bit different and uh in two years i want to release it okay well i guess i'll be re-watching it again <laughs> in two years yeah. time <laughs> amazing well look fernando thank you thank you so much and um i guess well happy 21st birthday <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much thank you Okay, that was Fernando Morelish talking to Dan Jolin and City of God is back in cinemas from this weekend. Five stars, says Empire Magazine, and quite frankly, everybody else. It is an amazing film. Go see. Anyway, that's it from me. Now it's back to me in the studio to do the bit where I say that's it from me. Enjoy. That is it for this week's Empire podcast. What, what? Yeah. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined by... in the studio. Okay. <laughs> we will not be having guests on our live show. Uh, it is an evening with the Empire Podcast and the Empire Podcast team. I am so, so sorry. Uh, <laughs> but we'll be joined in the studio by... Adam Sandler and Paul Dano, stars ah. of Spichemin. And, speaking of Spichemin, Josh Brolin, a.k.a. Gurney... Halleck. Halleck. I knew that. <laughs> Star of... I was just <laughs> waiting to see what James would do. No, I knew it was Gurney Halleck. Uh, and Thanos himself, of mm. course. I've been and, reading uh, his poetry this morning. What's his, what's his character's name from um, The Goonies? Brother. Oh, you're disgraceful. I don't remember what his name You're is. a disgrace. I literally thought it was Josh. So right, I name The Goonies, know. go. Mikey. Chunk. Data. Good. Data. Yes. <laughs> the, the one played by Corey Feldman. Mouth. The girls. No, Good. Ralph. And the girls. There are girls in it. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Martha Plimpton. No. Not the, the cast. The cast. She plays Martha Plimpton. Uh-huh. And the other one. Oh, dear. <laughs> the Fratellis. <laughs> Wishmaster. Played by? No, who, it's the, not who, Wishmaster. who are the Fratellis? Uh, oh, it's played by, by Agent Johnson, not Special Agent Johnson. <laughs> That's right. Uh, <laughs> who is? <laughs> Robert? <laughs> James is usually switched off by this point in the podcast. And I he know. Has, I'm desperately trying to come back to life. Yeah, he's Robert not used to... Davi. No, Robert, no. Yes, yeah, Robert, Robert Davi. Yeah. Yes, and... His brother. And, and, Joey... Oh, 
Joey. Joey Pants. Joey Pants. Mama Fratelli, who was thrown from the train. She was, and her name is? Mama Fratelli. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> dreadful, dreadful but people. But no, more importantly, like, so this is genuinely true, so I had to review for John uh, the new Dune picture book, which is all still pictures taken by Greg Fraser, the, the DP. But it, instead of having, like, captions... You get haikus written by Josh Brolin all mm. the way through it. So it's just Josh Brolin's poetry and Greg Fraser's Yeah, I've seen this on his Instagram, mm. yeah. It's we talk wild. about it in the interview. He's really good. Like, his poet, yeah. poetry's great. That's very good. Mm. Very, very good indeed. All right, Sean Astin was Mikey. Yes. Jeff Cohen yes. was Chunk. Yes. Yes. Corey Feldman was, was mouth. mouth. Yes. Kerry Green ah. played... Andy. Andy. Martha Plimpton. Yeah. Yes. Played. No, just A N D Y. Martha Plimpton played. The, the, the other one. No. Steph. 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 Who played Sloth? played. Data. Data. Yes. Sloth was played by John Matusak. And yes, the Fratellis, Robert Davi and Joe Pandoliano. And Ramsey played Mama Fratelli. And Josh Brolin's character is Mikey's older brother. Steve. Yes, he is. Stu. Ryan. Bob. Bill. Tom. Jack. I have all day. William. <laughs> Tad. Javier. Chad. <laughs> Agamemnon. <laughs> Colder. What? Colder. That's a ridiculous name. It is a ridiculous name. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> think, of, think of values. Values. Adam. Charity, hope, faith. <laughs> um, <laughs> <as> strength. <laughs> brand values? Brand. 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 His name is Brand. Brand. Short for Brandon. Yeah. I should get some points for Brad, which I'm pretty sure I said a Did you say ago. Brad? I think I did. See, you said values. I immediately thought Adams, as in Adams family <laughs> values. <laughs> Actually, no. I said Chad and Tad. I think. Okay. Oh, well. All right. So close. Uh, you were a tad close to, yeah. to get that. All right. There we go. Wow. That, Josh Brolin is going to be on next week's podcast. Is a roundabout way of saying that. And uh, and if you want to experience this bullshit live, why the hell would you? Uh, then come to see us live in Birmingham, Norwich, Sheffield, uh, Salford, and Dublin. And some people are doing more than one show. Time to say goodbye to my two colleagues of such lethal cunning, James Dyer. Goodbye, Chris. I'm going to go and gaze gaze at the rainy London afternoon out of my bum window. <laughs> How are you going to gaze out of your bum yeah, window? It doesn't make any sense. It's going to require some contorting, but, you know, I'll manage it. All right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Helen? Yeah. Hey, congratulations, Helen. What's that? You seem to have gotten engaged. What was that about? Oh, yeah, I did. Well, I, it happened a while ago. I just didn't really talk about it publicly. And then I thought I should probably, like, mention him. Have eventually. you told Chris Evans that you're engaged? <laughs> like, does he know? Um, okay. First of all, it's not Chris Evans. <laughs> ah, Never was Chris Evans. My love for Cap was pure, apart from that one time where he had a beard. We've discussed this. In which case it was positively filthy. <laughs> yeah. It was very impure at that point. But, uh, but otherwise pure. Uh, no, his name is Andrea. He's, he's Italian. He works on, like, space. Well, congratulations. I'm looking forward to meeting him. No, of course, we, we've met him. Uh, we've, we've been in on the secret for, for some time, some time, shall we say. But uh, uh, he is a lovely, lovely guy. Uh, and I hope he has a sufficiently wealthy estate. <laughs> yes, 10,000 a year. <laughs> 10,000 pounds a year, I hear. 
excellent stuff. Anyway, uh, I think it's time to bring this to an end, quite frankly, isn't Past it? Pastime, some would say. Yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it's goodbye for me as well, I guess. I'm, I'm, off to, uh, I'm off to earn my keep by cleaning James's bum window. <laughs> It's a dirty job, but someone's got to do it. And I like cleaning bum windows. <laughs> this year it grows hot. <laughs> and presumably like, you know, foggy. Yes, the condensation yeah. coming off your, your steamy bum. <laughs> it's something to be reckoned with. Anyway. I'm very uncomfortable. With I'm deeply uncomfortable with it. Do come and see us live. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.